1: Lemon, your secret love of the Irish is well-documented. After all, I am your mentor, you dated Dennis Duffy, and in the 90s you gave money to the IRA.
2: I thought I was contributing to a retirement account.
1: You know, I think someone needs to learn a St. Patrick's Day lesson. What is that? A curse?
3: Take it back, you witch! I'm Greta Johnson, I'm Trisha Bobita, and this is the Nerdette Podcast. So many of you more perceptive Nerdette listeners may notice that normally our episodes come out on like a Tuesday or Wednesday, but this week we just couldn't help ourselves. With 30 Rock up for its Emmys this weekend, we were too excited about our conversation with 30 Rock writer Colleen McGinnis not to share it with you right away. She was so much fun to nerd out with.
1: As a kid, you know, I started finding movies pretty early on. I have a, an older sister who's 10 years older than I am. Her name's Jane, and she is just this- the consummate film buff and has great taste. And she started introducing me to movies like Amadeus when I was like eight, you know, and Hitchcock. And she was the first person to kind of teach me that a movie is more than just like these pictures you're watching and entertainment. You know, like I remember sitting down with her to watch Amadeus, and she explained to me that, you know, uh, F. Mary Abraham, you know, won the Oscar, and he was in the stage production, and, you know, this is an adaptation, and Milos Foreman was the director, and you know, all about Mozart, and it was just the first time that I ever looked at a movie that way. You know, I just never thought about it, and I didn't know that people had jobs to create what was, uh, what was there. She also told me I couldn't ask any questions <laughs> during the movie, <laughs> um, which is something that I still keep now. Like, I feel like I have a real reverence for film, and it's like, if you're going to talk during it, you know, get out, <laughs> unless it's a terrible movie and we just want to have commentary on it. But so uh, it was around that time that our family got a VCR, and we would go to the library and I would, yeah, rent Hitchcock movies and um, a lot of Disney movies also, which I think are sort of dark, actually, if you think about it. Um, yeah, A friend of mine told me recently that he kind of fast forwards the beginning of Finding Nemo before he shows his kids,
2: mm. because
1: he doesn't want them to be sad. And. And I just thought about the Disney movies like Pollyanna, which I loved. She's paralyzed, you know. Like the movie ends, and like the girl can't walk, and you know, and Bambi, obviously, and and yeah, you Bambi know, all broke films. my
2: heart as a kid.
1: Right? Yeah, and it's like that's part of the rite of passage, almost, is to see Bambi have your heart broken, be terrified that your mom's going to die. <laughs> that's how you go through life, you know. It was always a combination of sort of darker films that I probably shouldn't have been watching at that age. And stuff like Disney, which, like I said, has its own aura of darkness that I really grew up on and that I love.
0: I love that idea of going to the public library. I remember that moment when I realized they have movies and they Mm -hmm. will give them to me for free.
1: Totally. Oh, yeah. And we had to sign up. It took like a month to get a movie. So like (laughs) if you wanted to rent The Black Stallion, you had to sign up like a month early and then it would come. You'd have like two days to watch it and then like some other sucker would, you know, would get it. But the other thing the library was great for in terms of nerding out was microfiche. I realized in eighth grade that you could look up old movie reviews and old interviews with actors. And as soon as I realized that, I would go to the library after school and dig up reviews on movies that I was excited about. It was before the internet, obviously. So I couldn't totally like nerd out you know. alone. I had to go to the library and dig up weird stuff and <laughs> read about how these movies came together. And I remember specifically... I was really fascinated by the movie Heathers um, when I was in eighth grade. I saw it, and I just read everything I could about it. I thought one of the writer was awesome. I was just fascinated with how this script came to be. It was so unique, and I just read every article I could about the film and went from there.
0: That's awesome. You sort of made your own little mini film school by doing that, really.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was a film school of one. was <laughs> <laughs> really lonely. <laughs> and uh, and that's what I was realizing like today, obviously, You know, there's so much camaraderie, you know, and even like the podcast that you guys have, like it's so great because people can find their tribe and geek out together and, and realize that they're not alone. I wonder how that alters anything going forward, you know, because I always felt like I was a little bit outside the pack. And then I almost had to keep these interests on the DL that a lot of my friends didn't want to talk about films or rehash SNL sketches. You know, I would just go home and watch SNL in my black-and-white TV in my room alone. You know, I didn't watch it with all my friends until maybe later. There was something sort of isolating about it, and now that's obviously changed, and and I think for the better. But I wonder how that will, I don't know, just sort of alter all these nerds' viewpoints, you know, because now it's it's a popular thing to be a nerd, I think.
0: Yeah, it's almost like the bona fides of kids who are into the same interests now as people who maybe were 15, 20 years ago, there's a sense of, but you're not suffering enough.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. It's easy to like any of these things that are now kind of cool, right? Like It's cool to watch Arrested Development and Breaking Bad and anything else that might have maybe been more of like a niche interest before.
0: I mean, I was definitely the kid in high school who had a a small core group of people who, while all the other kids were off in the field where there was, like, crazy drinking bonfire music, we were in somebody's basement watching Monty Python, you know?
1: (laughs) Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. See, we would have been friends. (laughs) (laughs) I think about, like, teenagers today, and I hope that, yeah, it is easier for them to just like what they like, because I always felt like for a long time that I had to, as I said before, these interests on the DL. So I I kind of had two groups of friends in high school. Like I had the friends who went out and partied and I did that. And then I had a group of friends who, you know, were in all the nerd classes with me and we did theater together. And yeah, we would rent like all the Miramax releases on the weekend or we would play, you know, charades and, and board games and stuff like that. And I always felt like I had to choose, you know. And then at a certain point, I would say it took me a while. I'd say by the time I was like 29 or 30, I was finally like, I'm a nerd, and it's cool, and it's okay, and I don't have to worry about dumb parties or whatever. It's like I just (laughs) want to sit and watch, like, some Netflix, and are you coming with me, you know? (laughs) If you're not, too bad, but it took me a long time to get there, and I hope that 13-year-olds today can just like what they like and not have to feel like they have to be
0: something else. Me too. If there's any 13-year-olds out there, keep listening because we'll be your friend if you like nerdy stuff like us. Or if you don't, we'll be your friend even if you like other nerdy stuff that we don't like. That's a big part of our thing is that good nerd etiquette is not to be sort of standoffish if somebody already isn't a fan of the thing you love. You have to embrace them and be an ambassador for the thing that you are obsessed with. Oh,
1: absolutely. And there's nothing more exciting than introducing somebody to something. The other big love I had in uh, eighth grade was Twin Peaks, and I still to this day... I get so excited when I hear that someone hasn't seen it. Like, I want to watch the pilot with them immediately. Well, Felina, uh, has not seen it. Are you serious? You haven't yeah. seen some peeks? I don't know. I mean, gosh. I've heard a lot about it, but I never have. I'm going to fly to the East Coast right now. Perfect. (laughs) We're going to get get it on Netflix now. I was going to say I have all the DVDs. Do you know who killed Laura Palmer? Like, is it just sort of out in the universe now?
2: No, I have no idea. I know there's something about pie, but that's really all I know about.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. The way that I found Twin Peaks is that it was premiering when I was in seventh grade, and I remember the ad campaign very clearly because... Here's another nerd confession. I used to read the TV Guide, like, read it like a magazine. Like, I was so nice. excited to, like, see what was on TV and, like, what movies were coming on cable. And I wasn't allowed to have cable as a kid. So this was all just like a fantasy. <laughs> um, but I remember seeing the ad for Twin Peaks. And at some point, my, my sister actually said to my mom, I don't think Colleen should watch this. I bet it's going to be really violent and inappropriate. And i was so bummed. And I didn't get to watch it until the summer after they re-ran the series. I remember it was like appointment television then, and they thought they could get some more viewers, and they did. And I somehow convinced my mom to let me watch it. And it was one of those tipping point things where a bunch of my nerdy friends, the theater ones I was talking about, they also all started watching it that summer. And we had this little Twin Peaks club. Yeah. <laughs> it was Yeah. We would leave notes for each other that sort of uh, mentioned stuff from the show, like the owls are not what they see, or like, <laughs> you know, Bob is behind you. And It was kind of cool to, like, go to math class and get, like, a creepy weird note. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. And we all assigned each other characters. I was Donna. I was Laura Palmer's best friend. And then the last thing I'll say about this is that at the time, obviously there was no email, but we were all in this mandatory keyboarding class. And there was sort of like a main master document that you could log into and so we would leave messages for each other there too
0: oh and secret was- messages on the school <laughs> network yes
1: Mm-hmm. exactly i love all things twin peaks and i hope that you do watch the show because it's fantastic the pilot specifically is is really wonderful and i think it's david lynch's best film
2: cool i will so colleen you're also <laughs> confirming my theory that younger siblings are just inherently cooler because their older siblings <laughs> get to tell them what's cool
1: you know, as uh-huh. an older sibling myself, I felt that it was very difficult to figure it out. How did you figure it out? Because, my, like I said, my sister found stuff, and I don't know how she really did it. How did you find cool things? I found nerdy things
2: just because of
1: reading. You know, I had
2: a tendency, like once I found an author I liked, to read all of the things by that author. But uh-huh. otherwise, I think a lot of it was actually friends who had older siblings and who were right. kind of more
1: plugged in. Yeah, we get this like bonus it's kind of not fair see
0: colleen (laughs) i have one brother who's eight years older and he struck this amazing balance for me which made it always okay to like nerdy things which is that he was sort of a sports star in our small town high school but he was also on the chess team and in the musical he was literally richie in a chorus line and was a starter on the basketball team that like went to the state finals all in one year so no one was going to make fun of him to his face or maybe they didn't he didn't care so i have to give him all the credit as the big brother too
1: God, he's like the breakfast club, but he's like one person. <laughs> know, it's all, everything wrapped into one. He is. He is the
0: breakfast club as one person. That's perfect. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is such a bonus. Yeah, and my sister would also sort of guide me to where it's like I remember in eighth grade also I started watching um, Beverly Hills 90210. And she was, like, really worried about me. She was like, Colleen is, is watching trash. Like, I don't, I don't know what she's doing. And also, the youngest, I was always behind in a major way where it would, I would be, like, 10, and it would be like, you haven't seen The Godfather? What's wrong with you? Like, <laughs> oh, I'm, I would like to see it. And then my mom would be like, you're not allowed. You're always catching up in conversations, so there is this kind of built-in motivations to read everything and just so that you can participate.
0: So it sounds like even through college, you were still feeling the pressure of, you know, nerd being a a sort of a negative. But I have to imagine that in a culture like where you were for college, pretty much everybody was a nerd, right?
1: Yes, everyone was a nerd, and there were just many variations of of nerdery going on. And I think eventually when I found the theater crowd is when I really felt at home. Because the thing about Harvard is that there is also a sort of, just like a rich kid kind of fancy element to it. Like almost every guy I know at Harvard owns a tux because there are a lot of black (laughs) pie events every Friday. So there is that other thing that's sort of going on, and I felt like, that was what I was sort of pulled back and forth between like wanting to go to the cool party at a finals club and hang out in a basement and maybe be raped or, you know, <laughs> do I want to like watch a, watch an improv show? And I started to lean more and more towards, let me go see improv on a Friday night. Let me, you know, clean out the theater on a Saturday afternoon. You know, let me go to TGI Fridays on a Saturday night and get the brownie bowl with a bunch of theater dorks and talk <laughs> about things that we loved. And I feel like it takes a long time or maybe it just took me a long time to... To finally admit to myself, this is what I like to do. <laughs> you know, I like to watch old movies. I like to play board games. And I get exhausted when I go to parties and stay for more than like two hours, you know. <laughs> so Totally. Um, I'm finally there. And it, it feels great. And I feel bad for people who aren't there. And so I hope that anyone who's listening is encouraged to just be yourself and do what you really want to do.
0: We will play Bananagrams with you anytime.
1: Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so cool. Wait, how did you guys find Bananagrams?
0: I have a friend who was like a super scrabble player and I was kind of intimidated oh. to play scrabble with him cuz it was just I mean it wasn't really fun for either of us cuz he was just so right. much better than I was but this was Off sort of an Q-A-T. equalizer You're
1: like what? Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was sort of an equalizer game for us to be able to play.
1: Oh nice. Yeah, cuz it's pretty like it's pretty easy in a weird way and it's also not. It's like it's just enough of a challenge that it keeps you wanting to play over and over again, but it's not so taxing. And you can, yeah, you can beat someone who's really great at Scrabble, right?
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love the yeah. I love the speed of it, too. It's like, I know how long it's going to take to play Bananagrams.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's like a limited amount of time. And the way that I found that game, this is a, another nerdy story, is that um, it was around that time when I was like, I'm done with crazy parties. And um, it was New Year's, and I was like, I'm going to like just be mellow this year, and lay low. And uh, that sort of limited my options. But a friend of mine who, you know, is married with a kid. She was like, why don't you just come over? And, like, I have some Academy screeners. We can, like, play games. I don't know. She's like, just come over. I was like, great. And so she's like, I have this new game. It's called Bananagrams. Like, my dad gave it to me. We played... Nonstop, like it was a video game. We played for like four hours straight. Her husband <laughs> went out to get a pizza. We didn't get up. We just kept playing, <laughs> and it was like the best New Year's I've ever had, you guys. And and the next day, um, I woke up and I was like craving Bananagrams, and she's like, "Come over and play again." And so like I invited <laughs> another friend, and we played Bananagrams for like three or four more hours, and it was awesome. I also oh I also brought over a game called Rubik's Race. Have you ever played that?
0: Oh, Ooh, I don't know no. this game.
1: Oh, uh, it's great. You have to get it on eBay, though. I played it at um, a friend's party, and I immediately went home and tried to buy it on eBay, and some idiot kept bidding against me, and I found out later it was someone from the same party. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Jacked up the price to, of Rubik's Race to, like, $40, and really it should be, like, $10. Um, but it's basically you're playing against somebody, and you're trying to um, assemble, like, one side of a Rubik's Cube on a little board, and oh. it's super fun. That's,
0: that's all I can cool. do on a Rubik's Cube. I can do one side.
1: Oh, and then you're going to rule this game. You'll be
0: amazing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you need to get that right now.
0: <laughs> on it.
1: Yeah. Oh, the other thing I was going to bring up, too, today is, is the
0: staircase. Have you guys seen it? I was Googling it when you sent that email. I haven't seen this.
1: Mm-mm. Okay. Well, then that's some homework for you. Okay. All right.
0: <laughs> yes. All right. So, so fill us in. Give us the pitch for our listeners. What's the homework? Mm-hmm. we got to check out the staircase.
1: Okay. The staircase is basically it's a French documentary. I think there's eight parts and they're about maybe 45 minutes each. And it's about this guy named Michael Pearson, who is accused of uh, murdering his wife. And she was found at the bottom of the staircase, like all bloody and beaten up. And it's the trial is just sort of fascinating. And all of these insane things come out during the trial, which I don't want to give away, but it is riveting. And um, I found it through the 30 Rock Gang. They're just following this guy around. And it's a, taste like you've never seen it's great you can discuss it for for hours
0: that sounds Um,
1: awesome yeah (laughs) i want to recommend something that no one's heard of but i don't think i can i don't think i'm capable the only thing i can think of is the family dog
2: so yeah i had never heard of that and i totally just watched it and i loved
1: it oh you did yeah it's on (laughs) netflix oh good i'm glad it holds up um yeah yeah, it was part of amazing stories you know that show that sort of failed i loved you know that steven spielberg produced and and if you look at the credits it's a bunch of incredible writers, you know, writers and directors who are now very successful. Um, and a lot of the stories are very creepy, but they had a, you know, they had one episode that was just an animated um, tale of this dog. It was just called the family dog, and I thought it was hilarious. And I must have been, I don't know how old I was, maybe nine or ten when it was on, eight, eight, nine or ten, somewhere around there. And I videotaped it, and I would watch it over and over and over again. And it just jumped out at me as something that. Uh, Influenced my little brain uh, in terms of comedy. I just and Brad Bird was the director, yeah, um, who's now very well known, obviously.
2: Yeah, it also kind of reminded me of that whole Disney cartoon with these really dark elements. Like I could see a yeah. kid watching it and finding it entertaining, but then also a grown-up watching it and thinking, "Wow, this is really grim."
1: Yeah, it is, right? It's like it's totally grim and creepy, and yeah, not entirely appropriate for kids. You know,
2: <laughs> even the animation I thought was really interesting. It almost reminded me of Yellow Submarine.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, oh, yeah. oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I can see that. Yeah. Yeah, it I was really cool. and I enjoyed it. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, cool. I'm glad you watched it. Now I want to rewatch it. <laughs> Did you ever see Nick Park's uh, Creature Comforts? Yes. Like,
2: oh, my gosh. That's fantastic, right? Yeah. Yes. Like Me and my awesome. family, right. very few things that we would all watch together, but Creature mm-hmm. Comforts was one and The Simpsons was the other. Mm.
1: Those were I'm like our nice family shows.
2: Yeah, it was really weird. It's like, I don't know, I feel like it says a lot about our family, but I'm not sure what.
1: (laughs) Did you ever get in trouble for, like, imitating, like, Bart or something? Like, did you ever say anything like, why is from the show and get in trouble? Oh, yeah, I wasn't allowed
0: to watch The Simpsons because of that. Me
1: neither. My parents were sort of big on, like, like I wasn't allowed to watch Punky Brewster, you know, because (laughs) my mom was like, she's fresh. And, like, I wasn't allowed to watch The Facts of Life because my mom was like, Oh, I know what that's about. Like, it's not about sex, Mom. It's about, like, a bunch of girls. Like, forget it. (laughs) Yeah. So that's cool that your family would actually let you watch The Simpsons. Because I... Yeah. yeah. My parents didn't love it.
0: Yeah, no, Colleen, I was with you. No Simpsons allowed in our house. Had to watch it at friends' houses.
1: We had, like, a TV in the living room. So it's like, if I was going to watch that, I had to go watch it in my room or, like, in the back. Because by the time I started getting older, my parents, who actually are my grandparents, by the way, and maybe that's why they were so strict, they would sort of be a little more lenient, but... When I was growing up, I I was just watching the beginning of shows. Like, I was watching, like, the theme to Laverne and Shirley. (laughs) And I don't have to shut it off, you know what (laughs) what I mean? Or, like, the theme to the love boat. My mom would be like, all right, that's that's it. And it's like, what? Um, Yeah, I had a very sort of limited TV viewing. Not in terms of, oh, she's watching too much television, but just in terms of content. But yet would be allowed to watch Psycho, which, you know, is incredibly violent. My mom would say, I don't care about violent stuff because you're not going to go out and do that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> wow that's, that's really, really interesting, interesting language. yeah
0: yeah. I would get so. told that whatever if it was the Simpsons or I remember things like Beavis and Butthead super not allowed mm-hmm. in my house but I would get yeah. told here's a VHS of Abbott and Costello or a Marx Brothers movie and we're going to watch this because this is funny That but was that's awesome yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: how cool is that though that they did that because that's you know that is the best stuff right I mean and that's everything that ultimately those guys are sort of stealing from at the end of the day you know totally. that's cool that you Introduced to
0: all of that, but that means my like pop so culture talented. references are like 40 years off from my age. <laughs> <laughs>
1: those are the best. <laughs> that's, that's why like we love you, kind of, like, Trisha.
2: Like,
1: seriously, like if I'm watching a show and they reference something from like 50 years ago, I always think it's great. As opposed to, I feel like it's very easy to reference something that's Miley Cyrus or whatever, and that's a different kind of joke. But you can really reach back, and I do feel like Thirty Rock liked to do that—to take references from all over and didn't care if you understood it or not, like didn't care if, will everyone get this reference? That was sort of a nice frame thing uh, about writing for 30 Rock, So you were searching for the unique reference as opposed to
0: the popular one. An example of that that's one of my favorite moments ever on that show is the episode where Tim Conway guest stars and I had grown up Hi. watching the Carol Burnett show on tape. And so I just totally spazzed out when he was on 30 Rock because it was, like, my two favorite comedy things ever happening together.
1: awesome. That's so cool. I used to watch the Carol Burnett show, too, with my family. Did you read any of her books, Carol Burnett? I I read, like, her latest one. It's called um, This Time Together. It's pretty good.
0: Oh, I haven't read it yet. Okay, more homework. Good, good.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Jackpot homework. In a weird way, I feel like sometimes people forget about her. Not forget about her, but I feel like, obviously, Lucille Ball, like, you know, broke open every door in every possible way. And by the way, did you know that she saved Star Trek? What? Yeah, apparently, like, when Desi Liu was, like, a big TV production company, I think it was just in the form of, like, being pitched, and she was the one who, like, greenlit Star Trek. Isn't that crazy?
0: That's amazing.
1: Yeah. I feel like Carol Burnett, I wish I, like... Heard her name more. and Maybe it's because the show isn't in syndication, really, right?
0: I think it was on Nick at Night or something like that for a uh, while, okay. and it being oh, really good. appointment TV for me to <laughs> drop whatever I was doing at 930 yeah. on a Wednesday or whatever weird time it was on and be like, it's Carol Burnett time. Yeah, for a little absolutely. while it was on Nick at Night, I think. But yeah, oh, she's awesome. You've said you were a fan of Thirty Rock before you started working on the show. How do you make that transition from fan to being a part of the team? What's that like?
1: That was a tough one, you know, because I, I really, truly just loved Thirty Rock so much. It was just it was my favorite comedy on TV, and I always related to Liz Lemon so much. And and by the way, I feel like she was sort of. Uh, even though she was a TV character, I felt like that character was influential in terms of me being like, I'm a nerd and it's okay, you yeah. know, um, <laughs> and I, it just came along at that point in my life, and so I loved the show so much and was obviously very thrilled and, and grateful to become part of the team, but but yeah, it's like I had to knock it off the mantle a little bit, you know, because I realized pretty early on that if I was going to try to pitch ideas and jokes and stories, I couldn't be thinking about oh, my God, it's Sarnia Rock. You know, it's like (laughs) nothing would ever come out of my mouth. I mean, I'd be (laughs) petrified. But I will tell you a funny story that when I first walked in to work, I think I got there, like, early, you know, and wanted to, you know, get set up or whatever. And, And first when I walked in, you know, we shot over at Silver Cup Studios in Queens. A bunch of the props were up. They're sort of up on this high wall, so you can see, like, little blue dude, like that costume and like Frozen Don Geis and like all that stuff is everywhere. So that that was just pretty neat and I felt like that satisfied you know, the the part of me that was just super excited to be there. But then later in the day, I was in my office and Subas came in you know, the janitor to empty my garbage and I was like, what is going on? Why is Subas doing this? And I didn't realize he's a real janitor. Like he's (laughs) Subas is a janitor that works at Silver Cup, who's awesome obviously and like so funny, but like I didn't know that, and so I was super confused where I was like, wait, what? Am I in the show? (laughs) Yeah, exactly, and everyone thought that was so funny that I didn't realize that he wasn't an actor, you know, he's a a janitor. And that was a moment, too, where I just, I don't know, I had to look at things a little bit differently and be like, oh, okay, I I get what this is, and (laughs) it took a little while for me not to be super excited, you know, when I started meeting everybody, and I realized, too, part of it is always being excited, though. I think everyone who was writing for that show was excited about it and, you know, probably had their own version of like, this is really cool. And uh, I just had to tamp it down a little bit so that I could actually be a human person that you wanted to be around in the room. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they always say that, you know, the first few weeks when someone's working in the White House, just the enormity of being in that building kind of has to shake off of you before you can really do your job. And I've always felt yeah. like in working with people you've been watching for that long and like seeing the work for that long, there might be a little bit of a White House feel in that first little bit of time. <laughs> That's how it was for me when I started at WBEZ, to be honest, because I was walking around being like, is Ira Glass around the corner? Is that going to happen? What's going to happen? Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's a great analogy, yeah,
1: the White House. And I would say, you know what, I would say that the better representation of that really is, when I interviewed for the job, I would say that that was almost the moment that I really faced that because, you know, I'm sure that you guys have read Tina's book. But, you know, there's a moment in it where she talks about when she interviewed for Saturday Night Live and that she couldn't believe she was saying here to see Lauren Michaels, and that was the same exact moment that I had you know because I, I was living in l a at the time it was the very last minute they flew me out to New York to meet with Tina, and you know I went to Thirty Rock and went up to the floor and said i 'm here to see Tina Fey. and I think that was the moment that felt sort of whitehousey to me because I sort of just couldn 't believe that I was there, and at that point, I really just sort of thought, well, like even if i don 't get the job, like at least I just got to have this experience, and I got to like meet Tina and just have this little moment in time and everything else happened so quickly you know moving out to new york and jumping on the show that in a way i didn't have as much time to be as freaked out about it i had to just sort of dive in but i would say that was the moment that felt more like holy shit what <laughs> well, <laughs> i gotta and- keep it cool i gotta keep it together man you know like during the interview yeah, cool yeah exactly it was like it was really just like a ticker tape in my head where i was like oh that oh, oh, like just crazy <laughs> thoughts and quoting the show and excited to meet tina and all that stuff, and I just tried to, like, seem normal. Everything's normal, but uh, <laughs> everything calmed down after
0: that, I think. And, you know, you clearly made a good impression, got the job, and you guys are going to keep working together, it sounds like. Yes. Really exciting yes. news. I'm sure you can't tell yeah. us too much about the project, but anything you can tell us, we would be excited to hear, and it sounds, you know, amazing. We're so excited for you.
1: Oh, that's so nice. Thank you. Yeah, no, I'm thrilled to work with her again and with uh, Robert Carlock, who was the co-showrunner on 30 Rock. And it's, yeah, it's a half hour single camera comedy that we're doing for NBC. And the short version is that it's kind of like Cheers set on Fire Island, which is a small island off of Long Island. It's just this little spit of sand that sort of like a beachy community in town. You know, at the heart, there's a Sam and Diane type relationship. You know, there's a woman who's starting her life over, and she meets this kind of dirt baggy boss of a restaurant, and it turns out that they have more in common than they think, and, you know, I, I just love all those shows like Cheers and Taxi and All the Family, and I felt like it would, it would be cool to do a working-class show, and, uh, and obviously, it's been fantastic to work with Tina and Robert. They're, they're so smart and so funny and have been fantastic in, in this whole process, so we'll see what happens, you know. We'll do our best. Try to get it on
0: the televisions. (laughs) Yeah, we want to see it on our (laughs) screens. Yeah, Yeah. we'll try. We'll do our best.
1: That's Um, amazing. And you grew
0: uh, grew up on Long Island, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, I grew up on Strong Island. I grew up in Islip, which is on the South Shore. There's a there's a large Islip, which is there's an airport there, but I grew up in a little tiny town it's right by the beach. And technically, Fire Island is part of the town of Islip. So I grew up going over there a lot as a kid, and then later in high school and college. It's just such a weird place. <laughs> <It's like laughs> people are just sort of cut off from reality in a lot of ways, and people have been there for years. And then there's tourists and, you know, boat people. And it, it just felt like such a specific kind of rich, fertile setting for a comedy so you know we'll see i don't know if we'll actually be able to shoot there or anything but um, but yeah it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating place
3: thanks to colleen mcginnis who you should really be following on twitter at c-o-l-l-m-c-g call mcg Thanks to each and every one of you for listening on Stitcher or maybe iTunes or maybe SoundCloud.
0: You know, guys, you could throw some stars and stuff if you wanted. It'd be cool. Stripes, too. Don't want to go back to Tarzan Spars. (laughs) BJ Lederman did not compose our theme.
3: You're listening to Poddington Bear.